we look at the hierarchies of stress in our system, the Buddha laid out the kind of um, the stress that comes from physical unpleasant experience of pain. There's stress that comes from emotionally unpleasant experience or pain. There's stress that comes from change. So even um, good things, when they change, it's sometimes hard. And then the in, and so the first kind of stress is something that all living things experience. So plants and animals also experience the, the, the stress of unpleasant physical sensations. So if a plant is being poisoned, it'll, it'll emit a stress response and try and move away from it or do something. And animals are all the time trying to negotiate so they don't have physical pain. And this stress of change is also something that animals experience. And so you can see animals who grieve when they lose a baby. And that grieving process can go on for a while. So loss of something that is loved is stressful. And having something that is not welcome is also stressful. And these two kinds of stresses are something that we share and have in common with um, much of life. You know, not just, it's not just the human realm. It's most, most animals and even in the plant realm as well. But the Buddha delineated another kind of stress, and it's the stress of inherent existence. This is the stress of like the impinging contact on the senses. It's the stress of everything is constantly falling apart and we're constantly having to keep it together. Mm-hmm. It's the stress of, of just um, existing and... And, and because of that, we're, we are in a, a rela- it's like um, on a treadmill. And that treadmill of, is by its nature unhelpful to our sense of ease and well-being. But the way the whole mechanism of stress is, is configured in our systems is, is, is that it isn't the sensations that are the problem. It isn't the pain that's a problem. And it isn't loss that's the problem. It's not wanting it to be there, which is really where the problem is. So you can see, you know, already in hearing about somebody like Deb, for example, you know, it's not as if there isn't going to be a whole big process of what it is like to recover, to settle, to find a new place to live and to deal with the loss of having lost everything in such a short period of time. But when the relationship with that immediate loss is not fraught with panic or fear or a sense of turmoil, then already the way one is relating to the stress has a huge effect on how we experience the stress. Now, in our contemporary societies, we have also another stress, which is just the magnitude of complexity that we have to navigate. So it's not even so much that it's unpleasant, it's just the impingement is so intense, it's difficult to process the information and let the system come to a place of relaxed normalcy after the end of a day, because the bombardment that we're having to navigate is so rich that oftentimes we don't have the skill on learning how just to relax, you know, so... You know, my brother's a good example. You know, he's revved up a lot of the time. <laughs> but anyone who's doing what he's doing and then come home and is taking care of a three-year-old child, you know, it's hard to slow down because there isn't, you know, to, to keep it all together. What does he do? And my brother, he um, he's the CEO of 
three companies. He's like, okay. yeah. And then he's the primary caretaker of his granddaughter, who's three. So he works flat out and comes home and works flat out. And, uh, and your father? And my father's at home as well. Involved in that too. Yeah. 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 So we can see that, you know, in our own experiences of life, you know, when you have a body and a heart, it's very much natural that we experience pain, both on a physical level as well as on an emotional level. Disappointment and sadness and sorrow, it comes with the package. You know, having sickness and getting older, it comes with the package. And experiencing loss comes with the package. Where the whole thing ends up getting really twisted up is when we fight with what is there, when we battle with it, when we resist it, when we're not wanting life to be the way it is, when there's some kind of a sickness and we don't have the capacity that we normally have and we're railing against being out of control in addition to feeling the ill effects of not being well. So the whole practice of meditation is to begin to get a sense of, well, what can we do and how can we focus our attention so that, one, we understand stress and where it's coming from, and then we can resolve it. So part of the resolution of stress is really a a kind of a reorientation of philosophy in the sense that if we're expecting something to be stable that is inherently unstable, unstable, that's stressful. If we're expecting something to bring a sense of happiness that changes, that's going to end up being a cause for disappointment. When we're expecting ourselves to be uh, superhuman and being able to process you know, 18 hours of nonstop information and come at the end of it and feel calm, <laughs> that is gonna, that's going to lead to a, a sense of disappointment. Yeah. So what is needed is to be able to reframe the way we're relating to life so that in every moment, as much as possible, we're not adding any extra stress. There's as much ease and well-being and relaxation as possible and as much intelligence and skill as we can muster so that as we have to go through the natural course of our life and deal with what it is to be a human being and have a body and a heart and a mind that perceives and navigate our daily lives and our families and our work, We're doing it with as much as possible a place of calm and a place of ease and a place of skill. And so the meditations that I'm going to share today are uh, the kind of fundamental meditation practices that help give us the ability to learn to focus in a way that allows the complexity to kind of fall away. Because, you know, when you're talking about the complexity of what it is to negotiate a merge or to negotiate insurance or to negotiate, you know, for example, a a loss of a house or buying a new house, you know, those are big things. But if you bring your attention into the present moment and feel what it feels like just in your body right now, we can wrap our mind and our attention around that, and that can let our system settle into a field that we can comprehend and learn some mastery with, so that it then gives us the resource to be able to discern where are these stresses coming from. So if we're feeling really disappointed because something is changed, And then we can see, well, you know, what I was investing in, which something was was bound to change. 
then we can see that the result of our investing in a, in a belief that wasn't actually founded in truth has given rise to this disappointment. And when we see things in a cause and effect relationship like that, then there's the ability to have more space around it rather than take it all so personally. Okay? So being able to see what's arising, learn how to relax, learn how to find some ground, learn how to feel our own physical body as a kind of place where attention can rest gives us the resource to navigate the complexity of our lives. It's like fundamental to being able to understand and resolve stress. Now, the way the Buddha set up the teachings was is that he let the body, he called it the first foundation of mindfulness. So within the Buddha's teachings, there's, I don't know, I mean, in the Zen tradition, they say there's 84,000 gateways. There's just many, many, many different places where you can put your attention and focus for meditation. One of the fundamental ones is just learning how to bring attention to the body. Because the body is not complicated, it doesn't live in the future, and it doesn't live in the past, and it doesn't create stories out of things. Our perceptions do that, our preferences do that, the way we remembered things do that. But our body doesn't do that. So if we're in a kind of um, proliferation festival, <laughs> what can happen is, is we can just bring our attention back into our physical body, allow our attention to settle there, get grounded there, and then begin to, from that place, pick up and see, well, what's what? You know. So there's this hilarious story, which is true. It actually happened. You know, so one of the things with meditation is, is that people like retreats. So you know, you've carved out two hours, and some people like to carve out a day or five days or a week or ten days or whatever, just because when you've got less stuff to navigate, then things settle into a deeper place, and it's easier to see what's happening. So one person was on a retreat, and when you're on a retreat, you spend a lot of time sitting. So you, we're going to spend 20 minutes sitting, and we're all in chairs. In that situation, we spend 45 minutes sitting each sitting, and almost everyone's on the floor. And so it's inevitable that there's some stiffness and aching and a little bit of to learn how to even sit in a way which is comfortable. But one person, one fellow, had some pain in his knee, which is not at all uncommon. And so what happened for him, he had this pain in his knee, and and it was quite strong. And so rather than just stay with the pain and the unpleasant sensation of the pain, he started to imagine, you know, what's going to happen if the pain doesn't go away. And then he started to think, well, you know, if the pain doesn't go away, it's going to damage my body. And if it damages my body, I'm not going to be able to sit on the floor. And if I can't sit on the floor, I'm going to need a wheelchair. (laughs) But as a wheelchair, I need to have a special wheelchair in order to come on retreat. So he spent the rest of the meditation designing special wheelchair to be able to go on retreat. (laughs) And you see, the reason why it's so hilarious is because what was happening was there was an unpleasant sensation. And... Rather than just be with the unpleasant sensation, which is what one would be encouraged to do in meditation, there was the thought and associations that came with it, and his attention moved into those thoughts, and then there was this whole proliferation festival that took those thoughts and ran with it. And we can see, you know, even though this is a slightly hilarious example, how we can do that. We can have a sensation and a thought associated with that sensation, and then it takes on a life of its own and then just goes off into orbit. 
And so then either we are trying to fix it or strategize around it or control it or something. But there's some big thing that's happening when really the simple thing is, is that there is a sensation and it's unpleasant. So when we begin to start dismantling this whole thing and start looking at, well, what is the ground? And then we can learn to shift our focus back to these simple things. What is the physical thing that's happening? And is it pleasant or unpleasant? Then we can reduce enormous complexity into something that is very simple and easy to observe. So a sensation we can observe. The quality of pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral we can observe. But designing a wheelchair for meditators is more difficult to observe. everyone here today is just to spend 20 or 30 minutes with a guided meditation to give you some some beginning sense of what happens with attention, how to focus it on the body, how to bring things into a um, into into one's attention, how to rest attention there without actually grabbing hold of the things, moving attention around, and then uh, and then see what the effect of of that is actually like for you. And then um, afterwards to break up into, into groups of twos and talk about the specific stresses that you experience in your lives as business people and as entrepreneurs. And then begin to see if there's a way in which this, these concepts might be able to support finding a way of resolving them. And then come back together as a group and share what you've shared individually or in pairs. Are there any questions that come from what I've said so far? No, it sounds great. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Can I suggest one thing, though? Please. Maybe, um, you know, uh, last time you shared your own personal journey. Yes. And I think some of these people are new, and yeah. they would, I know it was, you know, very impactful on me, mm-hmm. and I, I suspect that if you sh- at least share some part of it with this group, so Rosie mentioned that I started this when I was 17, and uh, she's right. When I was 17, I walked into a university class, and the class was on religions of India, and it was a little bit like somebody putting a match on a bonfire that had been doused with kerosene. Within one week, I knew without a shadow of a doubt that the rest of my life, spiritual uh, was the spiritual life was the center, going to be the center of my life. And within one month of being in that class, just in a university lecture hall, I had a vision of being a nun. And that vision kept coming back to me over the ten years that it took for me to get into the monastery. But for me, I, you know, I come from a Jewish family. I have, we don't have nuns in a Jewish family. <laughs> it's not in the catalog. <laughs> and I had no idea what a Buddhist nun was or what it meant. or I didn't know anything. But there, for me, the sense was, as a Buddhist nun, the life of a Buddhist nun was the total dedication of one's life force and energy towards the realization of truth. And I got that right, you know. So my own personal journey, you know, 17, you know what 17-year-old people are like. They're all over the place. (laughs) 
Well, I was not an exception in the terms of I had all kinds of things that were unresolved and unsorted and all the rest of that. And, and so I had a, a kind of the clarity to realize that I couldn't go into the monastery as a way of avoiding the stuff that was there to be dealt with. So the ten years that it took for me to get to the monastery was, you know, life experience of living and working and finishing degrees and boyfriends and all the rest of that, going on retreats and, you know, general living. And, uh, and then when I finally did get to the monastery, you know, by that time, then it felt like, well, if I don't go forth now, then I'm running away. You know, so there was really a sense of uh, something had shifted and a sense of completion. And so in the monastery, as a nun, we have a life of simplicity and renunciation. And uh, I don't handle money, and we don't store food, we don't cook for ourselves, and we're celibate. And in that kind of a context, meditation is the kind of the ground from which everything is uh, explored and resolved. But I was also living in a community that was... um, a recent arrival from Thailand, so the, the original tradition was from Thailand, and it had just come to England ten years before I had. In, in fact, it started, the sisters' community started the same month that I had that vision. It was the first time that the oh, sisters were already. Wow. Yeah, same month. Cool. Yeah. I didn't know about that until years later. And also because of being Western women in an Asian culture, there was all kinds of things where the Asian way of doing things didn't fit for us. So there's been this constant kind of rub against how do you make this work in this context, which is, you know, uncharted territory. So how do you use the fundamental principles in this context? And, you know, it's not been an easy road because we have had no models And the last few years have been particularly challenging because the sisters got confident. And once the sisters got confident, we're able to articulate the dilemma that we were in, which is that every single one of us was profoundly grateful for being in an opportunity to live this life. And yet we were in structures that um, conditioned us in ways that were unhelpful and in some ways destructive. We were trying to negotiate another way. And we were doing that within a tradition that had very strong ties to Thailand and also to values that were not Western values. And so the last couple of years have been remarkable in navigating stress. And this is a, t- a little different kind of stress. This is the stress of staying true to one's own conviction, no matter what the consequences. And so for me, what happened was I, I came to realize that this tradition was entrenched in patriarchal values that I had come to realize were not only not helpful, but actually destructive. And every single avenue that had been tried in order to find platforms for negotiation and strategies to talk about this and ways of moving out of it were not moving. And so when when we hit concrete, I said, I'm going. And so when I said I was going, when I made the decision to leave... I had nothing. So there was no organization, there was no community, there was no support, there was no funds, there was no place. But I said, I'm going. So for myself, these last couple of years have been also very stressful. Because as an alms mendicant who lives entirely on donations of others, without any resource, without any community, without any support base, without any system, to just trust that the practice was going to support me if I did this. 
has been a remarkable exploration of trust as well as the exploration of the, of the stress of what happens when you put yourself in a situation. Colorado Springs is not renowned for its liberal understanding, <laughs> its you know wide spectrum of Buddhist, you know, it's not like that. But my brother lives there, my father lives there, and I had some friends who were from students of mine. They live there, they invited me to come, and I thought, I'll just make it, I'll just give it a go, and if it's not going to work, I'll do something different. But, you know, so there's also the stress of, of, of staying true to one's conviction and putting oneself in a position where one is willing to feel the consequences no matter what they were. And in order for me to do that, it meant that I had to let go of basically everything that I knew. I had to let go of my community. I had to let go of the sisters. I had to let go of being in the monastery. I had to let go of having the support. And just walk in faith that somehow the truth was going to protect and that I would be able to navigate what arose even though I had no idea how that was going to happen and what was going to result. But it has borne fruit. And I, I don't know if any of you received this last long letter that I just sent out. But um, I, was, I was in California um, 10 days ago, initially intending just to go attend another ordination. And when I got there, the people invited me to participate in it. And for all kinds of reasons, which are very complicated and probably a little bit difficult to follow, because of the situation the sisters were in in my community, we were, an, we were a kind of anomaly in the Buddhist world. We had our own ordination, but it was unique. It didn't actually fit in with everybody else in the world. So in addition to navigating, leaving the monastic community, having done that, I was out on an edge because the ordination that I had from that community meant that I didn't really quite fit in with anybody else anywhere mm-hmm. either. Mm-hmm. And this ordination then is a, an ordination which is, which is something which... Uh, there are other people who have the same ordination. So without having any sense at all in my mind that this was going to be on the cards for me, I went there, and they had been thinking about it a long time because they knew my predicament and how challenging it was. And the sisters wanted me to join in. And so I was asked if I wanted to participate in this ordination. And this has been like 20 years of like, I thinking about and can it work and how do you do it and all the kind of stuff and all of a sudden somebody asks you and I you know all my, my all of the worries and concerns were just a mess and I said well I just need I need to think about it some more I had an hour before the rehearsal was starting you know it was like it's like you need to decide now or it's not happening so for me, the ability to know meditation and learn how to uh, let attention drop into a place of stillness, to learn how to trust my intuition, to learn how to navigate my discernment against my doubts and my concerns and my worries, and also this uh, faith that, that if one uh, is surrendering into something that is primarily or entirely wholesome, even if you don't have all of the I's dotted and the T's crossed and you don't have everything figured out. But that's actually what my life is about. It's something good. So I just came through that. That was like a little over a week ago. You know? 
just it's like you know you step off of a continent you're on another continent I'm in another I'm in another landscape and I'm exploring what that means yeah but things shift immediately as a result of that so does that help give you some sense of me and what my journey sure. is yeah. and where yeah. I've been and all of that that's the bear story I did yeah that's okay <laughs> yeah so um all I know, or the, like the synopsis of the bear stories, is, is that you know most of us have a very deep kind of um, belief that if we get what we want and we get rid of what we don't want, that that's where our happiness lies. I mean, that's like pretty fundamental. That's deep. And one of the things about that story, which was so remarkable, was is, is that with meditation, one learns how to be present in awareness rather than to absorb into the content of what one knows, so that even if the content is unpleasant, like unbounded fear, the awareness that knows fear is peaceful. And so the kind of thing about that story was is that something that for everybody or most people would be like your worst nightmare. My experience was of surrender into that awareness, and from that there was a profound sense of of joy and bliss and peace. And and so that, I mean, the reason why I think that's a helpful story is because it, it's a very um, dramatic uh, illustration that that belief that we have, if we get what we want, get rid of what we don't want, is a belief. It actually is not necessarily in accordance with reality. And that story rubs against that belief in a, in a big way because there was something that was horrendous that was happening and there was joy and peace and uh, that was very, very strong. So that comes back to the sense that it isn't what is happening, it's how we are relating to what is happening. And that is a fundamental uh, of importance in understanding stress and understanding how to resolve it. She was attacked by a bear. She didn't tell you that part. She was literally attacked by a bear. And she has scars on her head. And she went into this place that she's talking about Hmm. of acceptance and and being present. You say it much better. But she was attacked by a bear. (laughs) (laughs) Talk about a nightmare. So in a in a in a kind of you know we have our the simple things that we hold on to there's deeper things that we hold on to and then there's you know the cherishing of our life itself which we hold on to and and all of them we can uh, come into a place of of more peace and more sense of ease and understanding that life is the way that it is and yet our it's our attachment which is the place where we get stuck in where problems are. That's where the problem is. So when we can see that, when that, when that really makes sense to us, then we've got leverage where we can work and begin to unstick ourselves from the places where we're stuck and find more sense of ease and well-being in everything that we do. In our physical bodies, in our emotions, in our relationships, in our uh, negotiations, in our work our families and our community because it all comes I mean it comes from here how we are here is going to be manifesting out there 
So Vic and David, my brother, thought, you know, uh, that this is applicable. You're going to have to tell me whether it is or not. (laughs) So, you know, one of the things about being highly successful people is to always remember that really the most important success is here. This is where it comes from, and this is where it returns to. And you know that you know you can have a gazillion in the bank account, and if you're miserable, you're miserable. And the gazillion in the bank account has nothing to do with that. So if we don't get this right, then nothing follows. And when we do get this right, then even when there's tragedy or catastrophe or loss, then we have the ground that we can navigate it where we're not so rocked. We understand how to navigate the territory where we're congruent with what needs to be dealt with, responsive with what needs to be dealt with, but not flipping out because of the um, fear reactions and the emotional reactivity that can happen when there's you know, catastrophic loss or change. So, you know, I've always found this to be useful stuff. You know, for me it's been like, well, yeah, it makes sense. And for me, it would make sense that it would make sense to other people. But I can't say for you if it makes sense for you. <laughs> you have to say. So the idea would be to take some of these basic principles and some of these basic meditations and apply them in a context that might be useful for your own lives and your own work situations and see what happens. That was the idea. And, uh, you know, see what the results have, how the results unfold. Sounds okay? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you're certainly welcome to ask questions, you know. So, you know, if things come up about my life or about your own lives or whatever that are, I mean, I don't, I don't, the agenda or the way this thing was shaped was just a rough structure in order to create something that would work, but it's not fixed. You know, we can, we can shape the time. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.